One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Welcome. To Dan Snow's history hit. There are times in my career, especially on this podcast, I have to pinch myself that I actually can't quite believe I'm doing this. And this episode is one of those. I was lucky enough to talk to the very brilliant Dr. Irving Finkel. No one ever forgets him. If you were a casting director and you wanted to find, say, an expert, a curator at the British Museum who knows more than anybody about ancient Assyria, who spends their time piecing together tablets cuneiform, early forms of writing, to learn more about that long dead civilization, but one that shaped so much of subsequent human history. Picture that person in your head. You are picturing Dr. Irving Finkel. He looks every inch, the brilliant, the eccentric, the knowledgeable, the friendly, the kind, the hugely intelligent and wise ancient Assyrian expert that you've got currently in your head right now. He's an absolute legend. And I want to talk to him on the podcast and he said, let's talk about ghosts. Let's talk about the first ghosts that appear in the human record. And that means the ancient Assyrians writing down their thoughts about ghosts, what to do about them, what form they take, how to get rid of them, how to placate them. And I said, Dr. Irving Finkel, you're the boss. Let's talk about ghosts. So we did. We talked about ghosts and you're about to hear that conversation. It was, as you would hope, extraordinary. If you want to see other extraordinary history content and listen to it, you can do so at History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history, folks. I may have told you about this before. I can't remember. You go to historyhit.tv, historyhit.tv. You sign up for a small subscription, and then you're part of a revolution, which is making proper history shows and podcasts for proper history fans and listeners like you. Christmas is coming up. You can gift it, folks. No problems with supply chain here, as long as the internet doesn't break, in which case you've got bigger problems than buying presents at Christmas, let me tell you. If the internet works, you go online, historyhit.tv, gifting options there, you send it, that hard-to-buy-for history fan in your family, sorted. That Christmas tick, box, done, finish. No heavy, good vehicle drivers required for that, so don't worry about it. So head over to historyhit.tv and uh, get 30 days free if you subscribe today. But in the meantime, here's Dr. Irving Finkel talking about ghosts in ancient Assyria. Enjoy. Irving, thank you very much for coming on this podcast. Big pleasure. Very exciting for me. Now, I did not know that ghosts were as old as time itself. Tell me when the first ghosts were. Well, this is a very contentious matter, and no one, as far as I know, has ever braved it and tilted at the windmill in order to establish it. So this is my idea. The book is called The First Ghosts, which is about the ghosts of ancient Mesopotamia, because there we have written evidence from at least, well, 2500 BC onwards. So we have real writing, real ideas, and that's certain. But the ghosts never began with the Sumerians or the Babylonians. And in my opinion, they are, in fact, an attribute of Homo sapiens. Now, look, the thing is, this, this is a very difficult matter 
But I discovered in doing the work for this book that there are Neanderthal burials as well as Homo sapiens burials. So around the period 50,000, 40,000 BC, when Neanderthals and the Homo sapiens were in the same kind of terrain and apparently intermarried and played bridge together, it is absolutely astonishing that there are laid out graves with Neanderthal bodies, sometimes with bits in, not big bits, not television sets, but things. And it is my contention that in archaeology, when you have a burial with any kind of object in it, however modest, the implication is that once the body has rotted away and disappeared, some other thing goes somewhere else. So a necklace or a spade or a dagger or something will be needed in the future. So the implication of burying things with a body is not a woolly thing. I think it means the afterlife. So this is my pet and dangerous theory that the minute you have burial with an afterlife in your mind as a possibility or as a probability, if the invisible thing can go somewhere, then it can also come back. So I think that the conception of the afterlife and the ghost, the returning revenant ghost, are bound together and have accompanied human beings since they were first homo sapiens. That's why all over the world people believe in ghosts, even if they say they don't, they really do. All cultures have accounts which are very similar, directly comparable, and share the same innate beliefs, which is this, that when a person is dead, they are buried, they go somewhere. Right, everyone knows that. But the thing is, it's an almost human universal, the conception that if a person died under gruesome circumstances, they died in childbirth, they were run over by a tractor, they're very unhappy. When they're down there and buried, the spirit can't rest and it comes back and it hangs around where it was before and pulls people's hair and says, you've got to do something, you've got to do something. And this sort of idea is, in my opinion, a component of humanity. It is really deep fixed. That's a beautiful thing. How do we know though that it's universal? Where do we start learning about ghosts? How are they described in the earliest days of, well, art, imagery or writing? Well, the thing is this, the Mesopotamian sources I work on in the British Museum, these cuneiform tablets, we have many thousands of them, and they are to do with, among other things, magic and medicine and disease and ghosts. They're a big component of the problems facing human beings and the specialists who dealt with them. So from the middle of the third millennium, as it were, if we're outside with our microscope, we're Martian anthropologists, we can say, oh, by 2600 BC, at the very minimum, Ghosts existed in Mesopotamia. But the thing is this, the shared nature of humanity is such that when you start to poke around, the written cultures of the world are full of accounts of ghosts. Most of them are dismissed by scientists, of course, because they're just hearsay, but there are all sorts of narratives. And all over the world, in villages and small towns and the countryside where people don't live in the middle of a massive urban conglomeration like London, Beliefs like this go unchallenged. So I tell you the interesting truth. I believe, as far as I can see, this is a natural human belief system, which where it's allowed to continue without sarcasm, religious criticism, science and all that, which makes a ridicule of it, all over the world, people still maintain this basic belief system. And you can talk to people from cultures anywhere you like, 
And if you say to them, you know, I think it goes this, and my colleagues think I'm a lunatic. Well, they say, well, let me tell you something. I saw my aunt the other day in the garden in the vegetable patch looking for a piece of rhubarb. And this is a kind of universal thing. People live with the reality of it. And when you take the broad view all the way back, as far as we can, the modern world in which people laugh at this or they won't talk about it and they won't wear it on their sleeve and they suppress it is, so to speak, unnatural. How do people talk about them? Do people talk about seeing them? Are people speculating about their origins in your wonderful cuneiform? How are they referred to? When you talk about ghosts now, there are all sorts of stories and Victorian things and things on television, things in the newspaper, and people know what ghosts are like in that kind of world, and they clank along in hotel rooms, and that's that. But the thing is, when you look into the history of ghosts, if you do in a library book, people think they start in the Middle Ages, or maybe a bit earlier, but the Greeks and the Romans and the Babylonians had a very, very similar belief system. What they believed was, or what they record as happening, is that ghosts come and they annoy them. And they start off by being annoying. They make you jump. Sometimes they get obsessive. Sometimes they make you ill. Sometimes they persecute you. And the thing is, very often, the ghost can be recognised as being a member of the family or something like that, because they are in human form and they seem to wear clothes in the text, but they're not diaphanous exactly, but they're not solid. And people sort of take for granted that one of the things that can happen to you is you see a ghost. So what they did is they had all sorts of procedures for getting rid of them. Sometimes they're very simple amulets saying, go away, ghost, leave me alone. And if that didn't work, you got in a professional exorcist who might make a magic circle with recitations and offerings and spells and drive this thing away. So it existed as a kind of part of everyday life in ancient Mesopotamia. As far as I can understand it, from the king down to a beggar in the street, everybody took for granted the fact that ghosts came back and that people saw them. And therefore, it's up there with affection for children, food, sex. That's one of our most universal characteristics. Yes, well, I think it's a human basic matter that nobody in the world, wherever you went to talk about this, would step back from you and say, what are you talking about? They would have it in their own lives or their own family memory or their own awareness, the same idea that this is what happens in the real world. Anyway, I've done my best to argue for this. But you see, the thing is, I have to explain, I've never seen one of these things myself. So... People say, well, what do you know about it? Well, I can read these inscriptions, which is what I've done. But on the other hand, it gives me a kind of detachment. Because if I wrote a book, say, I'm writing this book because I saw a ghost and I know what they're like and you have to believe me because I'm telling you, people won't even read it. But I'm very sympathetic to the matter because, you know, if you look in Indian resources, in China and Tibet and all over Europe and, and you know, wherever you find writings, they're not publicise statements for the world at large. They just record, you know, clergymen write down things that happen and local people write down things that happen. And there's a huge backlog of unsolicited recording and description of these things, which nobody puts together into a general picture. It's very fascinating. Anyway, I can't do all that. All I did was to write about the first ones because in the BM we have all these records. It's just marvellous, you know, and there are spells we now had to get rid of them. So there is a gruesome underworld where people went, you see. So when you were buried, you went down into the underworld and you were supposed to stay there. That was the whole system. And most people probably did. That was OK. But it's the troublesome ones who didn't that caused the difficulty. And the way they write about these things are very matter of fact. And one of the most convincing matter of fact things is this, I tell you, that they had the idea sometimes that ghosts, when they came back, 
if they weren't peeved personally or irritable, they might have a message. And ghosts didn't often say anything. And there are one or two rituals for this, that when a ghost is there for compelling it to answer questions, because it's very annoying if you think the ghost has come up to tell you something you can't find out. And the most extraordinary way of doing it was this, that you have a skull. You procure a skull because people were often buried under the floor in their houses, and you could, in fact, get your grandfather's skull if you wanted to. And this was not an everyday matter, but it was carried out. The skull would be anointed with a special oil, and the exorcist would come, and they would burn incense, and everybody involved would be very keyed up. And then there's a big invocation to the sun god to bring up the shade of this person from the netherworld, to answer questions. And according to this inscription, the person goes into the skull and then answers the questions there in front of you. So we have a literature to get rid of ghosts, which is most of it, but also a little bit of literature for bringing them up to ask them a leading question. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about ghosts in ancient Assyria. So there we go. More after this. Hi, I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. 
Terms and conditions apply. Now, you're going to have to excuse my extreme ignorance here, but when we say cuneiform, we're talking inscription on bits of tablet? Yes, that's the stuff. So people wrote on clay because in ancient Iraq, Mesopotamia, they had all this marvellous clay down the banks of the rivers, which took impressions beautifully. So in about 3200 BC, they started writing. And this writing very rapidly turned into what we call cuneiform writing. So it's made of signs of different strokes, which are each impressed into the clay with a chopstick, so to speak. So you have the sign for water. There are three separate applications, plonk, 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 and that's the sign for water. So you had to learn all these signs to write the language. And cuneiform means that what the signs look like. So the thing is, when you write on clay, which they sensibly did, it means that the material survives in the ground forever and ever. So in the 19th century, when there were big excavations, they found tablets by the thousand some of which went back to 3000 BC, 2000, 1000 BC, where all these messages written then by private persons, which were buried in the ground and lasted, came to light. And we can read them with a great deal of accuracy and listen to their voices. And ironically, clay, which you might think is a very messy material and cuneiform writing, a very complicated material, together preserved our first account of many aspects of the human mind. So we have in the BM about 130,000 of them. They're absolutely marvellous. And so we've got the Vindolanda tablets from the legionary fortress just south of Hadrian's Wall. They are sort of letters from one person to the other. What are these kinfolds? Are these personal? Are they diaries? Are they official statements? Are they literature? Why do they write them down? It's a good question. It's a big question. Basically, there's very little private literature. We don't have diaries, but we have correspondence in a great quantity, often business and marriage arrangements, things like that. Lots and lots of letters we have. That's one thing. Then we have the royal inscriptions of the kings and the law codes and the historical accounts of what they did and the mythological accounts, literature, things like the Epic of Gilgamesh, the famous thing like that. And we have spells and incantations and cures and lists of plants and censuses. In fact, they used writing on these cuneiform tablets for a pretty extensive span that corresponds to how we traditionally use writing. But the thing that you mentioned at the beginning, the diaries, personal accounts, that's the one thing we don't have. But the Vindolander letters are marvellous because it's like listening through the window of somebody's house when someone's talking to another person. The whole of the experience comes straight through the window into our ears, and it's the same with this clay stuff. It's like tuning in. And sometimes you have correspondence on one side and the other side, and you can see how they don't believe one another another and they argue with one another and when you're very lucky you get the whole picture coming out of this dead stuff that looks like nothing on earth you mentioned the 19th century excavations are they still pulling them out today well there's not so much excavation going on today but when they do excavate seriously in a major site you can be sure of finding these tablets because unless they're literally thrown in the river tigris they tend to last in the ground so if you dig at a certain period, you follow rooms, you find a gateway, you find administrative buildings or temples. If you're lucky, on the floor or in boxes or things, you might find inscriptions that have been there ever since waiting for us. It's very remarkable. So there's lots more to find out. Well, most of the cuneiform tablets that we know in the world, most of them come from what is now Iraq, what the Greeks called Mesopotamia. 
between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. That heartland was where this writing started off. And from my perspective, as somebody who reads these tablets, the whole landscape is full of them under the ground waiting to be discovered. Because when you have literacy in a society, you don't have one city with writing and one without writing. It just spreads everywhere. And they all have the same urgency for record keeping and correspondence and what have you. So probably most of the sites of ancient Iraq, certainly the ones BC, which go back to the Neolithic and what have you, but certainly the historical periods BC, all the sites ought to have inscriptions in. And of the ones that we do have in places like the British Museum and elsewhere, how many of them have been read by experts like you? Well, the thing is this, when they came in the 19th century, you know, over 100,000 of them, they were immediately catalogued with a quick description. And from the back of this quick description, it became possible for scholars who were looking for particular things, for example, when they first worked on the story of Gilgamesh, the 12 tablet hero story, when they were working on that, they were able to use these primary notes to find in the collection things which belong to it. And then once things were identified as being part of the same composition, they were then published and translated and republished and retranslated. And it's an ongoing process because, as you can imagine, clay tablets, like if you have a shortcake and drop it on the floor in the kitchen, you'll have four large pieces and a number of crumbs. But it's much the same with a clay tablet. If it's looked after, it can be complete, but often they're broken. And because the excavations were done on such a scale in the 19th century, very regularly, huge consignments arrived, say 20,000 tablets sometimes, where you had complete tablets, half tablets, quarter tablets, and lots of fragments, all of which are safely in the collection and which idiots like me spend their entire lives trying to find the bits that join together. And in the past, it's been a rather laborious, so to speak, manual process. But of course, in today's world where things are different, electronic documentation has been a great asset. So big swathes of our collection have been digitally photographed. And people who work on these resources are able to use these photographs wherever they are, and sometimes they identify pieces that join together and so forth. So it's a big leap forward in the practical application of it. So how many read? Not enough, I say, would be the answer. <laughs> but ballpark, what kind of proportion of them? Well, I should think, say we've got 130,000. I think we've got a pretty good idea of what's in about 80,000 of them and a slight idea of the others. I've looked at every tablet myself, and I'm sure John Taylor, my colleague, has done the same. So we kind of know what's where the sorts of things. But there are many tablets that have never been read in modern times properly. And of course, you can't pick them up like a newspaper and whiz through them. Often they're fragmentary and difficult and you have to work. So in some ways... People could say, well, you've had all this stuff since 1850, what you've been doing. But the other thing is, it's all safe. And we've got enough work to do for another 200 years. So that's also a comforting matter, just in case it's not possible to get any more out of the ground in the future. Well, listen, any graduates listening to this, you want a job for life. You give Irving a call. Sounds like a sweet gig for the next 200 years. Yes, of course. And when you start writing books about ghosts and the world to come, it doesn't have to stop with life. You can just keep going, as far as I can see. And there's plenty of marvellous, marvellous things to do. Astronomy, astrology, all those sorts of things, mathematics, lexicography, serious disciplines of things. And of course, telling the future, because that was their crucial thing to try and predict what was going to happen. So we have lots and lots of literature of this kind. Just give me some of your favourite things you've gleaned from these tablets about ghosts in particular. 
I have members of my family that are interested in ghosts and I can impart some ancient wisdom to them. Is each ghost different or they all respond to certain things to keep away? Well, the first thing is if you know lots of people who are interested and if they really want a compendious list of these resources to have in their bathroom cabinet just in case, a very simple way to deal with that is to acquire a copy of this new book just about to come out where they're all there easily to hand. But sometimes they are a bit funny. But my favourite one of all is this. The bloke says something like this. You ghosts, why do you keep appearing to me? Why do you keep coming after me? He says, I am not going to Kutha. Now, Kutha was a Babylonian city where the entrance to the underworld was located. And what he says to these ghosts that you can say what you like. I think the ghosts are kind of going like this with a bony finger saying, come with us, come with us. I'm not going. And then he recruits the names of the most powerful underworld goddesses, the queen of the underworld, and another goddess who has a lapis lazuli writing stick, and she keeps the register. So she had a kind of in-out system. So if there was a ghost that's supposed to be in the underground and isn't there, this goddess will know about it and if you report to the goddess with her stick and she makes a note this ghost is going to be in trouble so he kind of drags in the headmaster and headmistress as a kind of threat so it's an incredibly human thing and underneath it there are two things one is the mechanism of the ghost thing is not a kind of conventional explanation of the unknown or a euphemism for what we don't understand. It is a literal, literal belief in the matter. And the way that it's dealt with in the first thing is slightly sarcastic. I'm not going to the cemetery, he says. I'm not going with. So you can just imagine it, buoyed up perhaps by this priest telling him what to say, that, you know, go away, I'm not coming with you. And that's kind of funny in some respects, I think. I think it's very funny indeed. So after ghosts, what is next? You mentioned all these other areas of study. What are you going to launch into next? Well, I'm writing a book about the Royal Game of Ur, the famous board game from Mesopotamia, where there's 3,000 years of evidence and the rules and all that kind of stuff. That's very complicated. Now, I've been doing that for ages, but I'm going to do that next. And I'm also writing a book about diaries, since you mentioned diaries, because I started this system in Britain to prevent more being thrown away and being rescued for the future, because I think people's private diaries are a bit like cuneiform tablets from antiquity, because they're full of messages, and in the future they'll be marvellous. So we've already got about 12,000 of them, and we're going to save as many personal diaries as possible, which have the same kind of function, because if you read an old diary, it brings... 1890 or 1915 or something, very vividly to life when you read the words, exactly as an ancient clay tablet does in the 1500 BC. It's the same kind of principle. Listening to this, if people have got a diary, how do they get in touch with you? Where do they send it to? The Great Diary Project. It's in Bishopsgate Institute near Liverpool Street Station. The archivist there, Polly and Stefan, they will take any diary, any kind whatsoever, even written on a mirror with lipstick, no problem whatsoever. And we've got three centuries of stuff and they come in and they come in and they're just marvellous. And to me, they're exactly the same kind of thing as these tablets of clay. It's very wonderful. Wonderful. Please take your things to Polly, everybody listening. Irving, thank you very much indeed. See you soon. Be well. I feel we had the history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. 
Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Dance History. As I say all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating and review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors. That's flying high in the charts. We've got our Medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got Warfare as well, dealing with all things military. Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.